Direct from Newstalk ZB's team at Parliament, the Beehive Buzz. Beehive Buzz. Newstalk ZB chief political reporter is Aaron Darman, and he joins me now. Good morning, Aaron. Good morning, Nick. How are you? I'm great, thank you. Well, I know we've, we're going to hit, talk about things at the Beehive, but we can't start the conversation without touching on local body elections. I've been hearing there's a lot of murmurs around the Beehive around about the voting rates of people who are actually voting. Yeah, look, I mean, this is unbelievable. In, in one area of Auckland, fewer than 20% of eligible people voted in these local body elections. Overall, just 31% of Auckland's nearly 1.2 million eligible voters took part in the elections, and that's the lowest turnout by a long stretch since the super city formed in 2010. And across the country, we're looking at a record low 36%. 36%, Nick, voted in that local body election. It's expected to increase just once all votes have been counted. But I mean, we've got the head of local government, New Zealand, urging an independent review. We've got basically all the political parties united uh, on the fact that the low turnout is concerning. It's been echoed by Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern. And dare I say it, I mean, local body elections have become more like the local home body election because the data shows if you're younger, if you don't own a, own a home, you're simply less likely to vote. And Add to that the disparities we see up and down the country, certain areas of Auckland uh, that barely are getting out to vote at all, like I mentioned. There is a sense, of course, of autonomous decision-making required by an individual to get out and vote, but it needs to be easy to do so. And I feel quite strongly about this, because to have a functioning democracy, you need to make the process easy, and you need to make it simple for the voting population to have their say. Democracy dies in the darkness of ambiguity, and when it comes to local body elections, We need to pull our socks up. We need to take some tips, a page or two, maybe the whole book from the Electoral Commission and New Zealand's general election. And, of course, nothing's perfect, but 36% to me is simply not good enough. You know what? I'm going to say to you that maybe I hang around with politically active young people. But in my view, in my life, I found that the young people that were voting and the older people said, there's no one there I want to vote for, therefore I'm not going to vote. Well, that's what's really interesting when you look at the numbers. We, I totally agree with you. I mean, it is, of course, a matter of your own silos and your own echo chambers where the people that you spend time with, likewise myself, uh, a lot of people that are politically active, they're, they're, they're getting out to vote, they're active uh, in that space. But then, of course, you just see so many that, you know, my flatmates or whatever people that I know, they go, oh, yeah, you know, I might get out and vote. I might not. We'll see. I'm not quite sure who I'm going to vote for. The older people, in the end, do end up uh, getting out and ticking the ballot, uh, ballot paper. But, but look, I think, I think ultimately we've seen across the country, of course, a bit of a swing to the right. Perhaps that is that home ownership, uh, that more conservative lean of an older population uh, at play. Except, of course, here in Wellington, where Tory Fano, I, I think, really uh, activated the grassroots, activated those young people. And perhaps that's us as well here in this Wellington silo, where I think there are a lot of young people that are really active in politics who, who did vote, uh, potentially more liberal. Uh, but across the country, it's, it's another story. You know, my view on the Tory Fano thing, and I, you know, I've got, I like her, and I think she's going to be great, and I'm going to give her my 100% backing. But I think it was a vote for change, and none of the other people were a vote for change. Well, I think, I think you're right. I think, to, to my mind, Paul Legal sort of lost it for himself in a way because he had all the backing, he had all the support uh, that he, he, any candidate really, you'd go, yeah, they're, they're pretty much a shoo-in. Uh, but unfortunately uh, for him, 
uh, it, it didn't it didn't work out, and immediately he went back to going hashtag uh, Rongotai MP on Facebook. It was like the campaign had never happened, and. You know, it is, it is to me, the difficulty of local body voting often makes status quo or familiar faces the easiest option. And when you look at Tori Fano's campaign, where she kind of went from a self-described nobody on the ballot paper to mayor, that does show people power and grassroots politics at its most effective, and there has to be a hat tip for that. Absolutely. They wanted change, we wanted change, and she was a vote for change. The government emissions levy seems to be dominating the news headlines this week, but I understand there is a bit of a mixed reaction. Yeah, it's crunch time at the farm gates. The government's unveiled this response to the industry-led Hewaka Ekenoa report. That'll basically keep the agriculture sector outside of that controversial emissions trading scheme in return for farmers paying for their own emissions from 2025. That's controversial, that scheme, because, well, the agriculture sector says it's just not fit for purpose for them. Now, the strategy uh, that the government has unveiled is now out for consultation, but there is a bit of mixed response. Uh, It would would probably be an understatement because the report initially, the industry-led report, initially wanted farmers to price and pay for their emissions, but the government went, yeah, nah. So they want both industry bodies and the Climate Change Commission to recommend a price to the Climate Change Minister. The Minister then takes that to Cabinet and Cabinet sets the price. Now, National Leader Chris Larkson, he says it'll decimate sheep and beef farming. James Shaw, though, says that the criticism is confused. And talking of James Shaw, he, of course, in this whole debate, has two hats. One is Climate Change Minister and one is as Green co-leader. And, of course, we saw that very, very... Uh, uh, front of mind when he was a couple of months ago, effectively rolled as co-leader and then voted back in because the Green faithful weren't happy enough with his advocacy uh, on the Greens' behalf. Now, those two hats have butted heads in, this, in these talks over the scheme because Shaw proposed for a cap-and-trade methane strategy. That was shot down by Labour ministers, and the Greens then, as soon as the plan was uh, put out, of course, you had James Shaw with the Prime Minister, Jacinda Ardern, announcing the government's response, but the Greens under James Shaw's uh, name, were running a social media campaign lauding his plan. Uh, so a very interesting play of politics there. And you've got to say, I mean, this is smart from the Greens. Uh, they, they said, yep, OK, fine, we'll go with what Labour wants, uh, but we're also going to uh, step outside of that, uh, that cooperation agreement and have our own say. And in a press conference alongside Jacinda Ardern, Shaw, who of course does sit outside Cabinet, he was pretty upfront. You know, I think it could be more robust and, and a system that uses an absolute cap as... Um, you know, the most robust that you can have. However, uh, something that um, isn't going to be up and running on time uh, and uh, could be easily dismantled is not going to deliver you the emissions reductions that you need. Um, and so therefore, um, uh, you know, Cabinet's made the, um, the choice that it has. There is a question um, in the consultation document about whether we should work on that over the long term. Um, but uh, ultimately, you've got to get started. So there you go. Yeah. It could have been more robust but also saying, well, uh, OK, it, it might not have worked by 2025. James drawn that middle ground and really trying to tap into the green space or to say, hey, I'm here for you. Yeah, and he did not look comfortable in everything I saw on TV. Oh, no. He did not oh, no. want to be there, did he? <laughs> OK, a, a New Zealand-linked Russian steel magnet has been sanctioned by the government yesterday. What do you make of this, Aaron? Alexander Abramov. That's the name that's been bandied about since the start of Russia's invasion. Uh, that's the name that's been bandied about here in New Zealand since the start of Russia's invasion in Ukraine. And it's been in Foreign Minister Nanai Mahuta's head as well. That's because he's effectively the only directly New Zealand-linked uh, Russian oligarch that we know of uh, who has very direct business links, uh, business investments 
here in this country. And so there was much talk over whether or not he would be sanctioned over months and months and questions over why he was not part of the travel bans and, and the different sanctions that were played out. And ultimately, the government's now decided we are going to target uh, Abramov. We're going to stop him and his family members or any of their planes or ships from coming here. But we won't go to the point of freezing his assets. And we spoke to Foreign Minister Nanai Mahuta, who told us that's because of the full extent of Abramov's business interest in this country. I've spent quite a bit of time to ensure that the legislative threshold uh, is able to be met. She did make very clear to us that it's, it's certainly possible that he will mount a legal challenge. We understand he has done so. He's also been sanctioned uh, in Australia, and he's done so in Australia. And so this, this is a guy that owns a $50 million lodge in Northland, Helena Bay. Uh, he's got a number of uh, business investments, like I say. And so the government themselves actually don't know quite how many. They don't have a full picture of just how tight, I guess, his grip is particularly in Helena Bay, but also uh, around New Zealand, what he's got money in, uh, where he's got links to. Uh, and so the whole point here is not to impact the livelihoods or the jobs of contractors or the people working at that lodge that, of course, impact the New Zealand economy. They've really tried to uh, tried to walk a fine line here. Uh, but you've got to say, we understand Abramov hasn't been uh, back in New Zealand since at least before the pandemic. It could have been years before. Uh, so uh, whether or not a ban on stopping him from coming here yeah, will actually do anything, uh, you know, I, I, I don't think I don't think we'll see massive impacts. No, and Nanaya Mahuta would be very careful because there's a lot of whānau up there that are working for this gentleman too. We saw that, didn't they? That we saw the the local iwi saying, "Well, he, uh, he's done a lot of good for the area." So she'd be very careful what she would do there. Aaron, always a pleasure. Thank you very much. Have a great weekend. Appreciate you all the work you do for us, Aaron Darman. Uh, Aaron Darman, News Talk Chief uh, News Talk Chief Political Reporter, the Beehive Buzz.